Let me invite you to once again open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This morning we resume our study of the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, which was the manifesto that Jesus gave us, introducing us to what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Words that guide and that convict, and at the same time drive us back to Christ, showing our need of him, and then relying on his promise that he would express himself uh, through us as well. As we come to this passage, our passage this morning we'll be considering is Matthew 5, verse 9. And before we consider it, let's go to our God in prayer. Our God and Father, as we give you this time, not only the time of worship through song and confession, we give this time of worship to you to listen to your voice and listen for your voice. For you have not only recorded your word for us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, but you continue to speak your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that he would speak to us even now, that our act of worship is listening for you with the commitment to being shaped by your word. May we be opened up and reaffirmed in ways in which we are walking with you. May you expose ways in which we are wandering from you. But in all things, may we be pointed to Christ, who is your gift, your remedy, uh, for those who are walking, running, and alienated from you. And show us that he is our all. We are always in need, for he is the word incarnated itself. So, Father, may we see and hear what you would have us to hear, but may we see Jesus in our need of him, and your promise fulfilled in him. To your glory and our good, we pray all things in his name. Amen. In their notable book, The Lessons of History, the philosopher, historian, Will Durant, along with his wife, Ariel, they write this stunning statistic. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Again, as I said, is to me, as I read that and considered it as stunning, it's easy to just bypass those numbers and statistics, but I want to read it again and consider the magnitude of it. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. We might add that as that book was published in 1968, we can add 50 years to the total of human history, but we can't even add one day to uh, uh, the time that has seen no war. It's a reflection of the reality that we live in a very conflicted world. All of us have been affected by it one way or another. And the Durants go on and made this observation somewhat sobering. War is one of the constants in history. It has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In other words, what they're reporting is even the things that we tend to hope, things that would give us the best opportunity to live together and to minimize the things that combust themselves into warfare, even the presence and the development of those things has not curtailed the propensity 
for people to go to war with one another. Not in the idea of civilization where we decide that we'd like to live in peace with one another and so we don't do barbaric things to one another. Nevertheless, we continue to go to war. In democracy, where each person has an opportunity to voice their opinion, so the idea that oppression would burst out into warfare would seem to at least minimize that, and yet even with the growth and the spread of democracy, we still know no time where there is no war. It's because we live in a strife-torn world. And as I said, it's not any of us who is unaffected by it. Some of you have actually been in war and seen the, uh, the, the, the horror, uh, the pain, uh, the intensity uh, that is difficult for others to be able to experience. Many of us have been impacted by the results of war or things that are going on day to day, the instability of, of our culture, of our economy, our, our results or consequence of war. And it may be that you've never actually been in war or really felt significant effect of wars that are going on in the world, but there's not one of us here that has at one time or another not been engaged in some form of personal conflict. Whether you are actively engaged in seeking conflict or whether you felt attacked by somebody that you had differences with, we have all experienced conflict at one time or another and without knowing, I would still suspect that the vast majority of us, if not all of us here today, are probably experiencing some form of conflict somewhere in our lives, even as we're here today, whether that's within our family, or in our workplace, or in our community, or at least certainly within our culture. We're not only spectators of conflict, but we are participants, or at least uh, affected by conflict in a very personal way. And so it's no wonder that H.G. Wells had once lamented as he was considering his life, I'm nearing 65 years old, and yet I'm still looking for peace. All of us are looking for peace. We all long for peace. The question, however, is not whether we long for peace, but how are we going to find peace? Where is peace going to come from? What Jesus would say to people who live in such a strife-torn world such a conflict that surrounds us is the exact same thing as he said to his disciples in the first century. His words for those who live in the midst of conflict are these that we find in our text in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, these are very simple instructions in one sense. There's a call to us, an instruction to us, and yet the magnitude of these words is really quite intimidating. And so even as I teach this morning, I'm very conscious of a number of things. One is I won't even begin to scratch the surface of all the dimensions to which these words apply from a global standpoint or even a, even in a, a, a personal, interpersonal standpoint. And second is, even as I've been called to teach these and would love to embody these, I'm reminded of how infrequently these are characteristic of at least my instincts, if not my life. These are not my, reflective of my first response when conflict arises. My first response to conflict is to fight, to conquer, to beat somebody into submission so that you will see the wisdom of my way. 
And so I have to confess at the very beginning is these words are very convicting for me, even as I've had to process all week, what is it that Jesus is calling us to? And so with that in mind, probably the best thing for us to do is simply just to dive in and to dig deep and open up and see what Jesus speaks to us. Now, for the sake of continuity or for the sake of understanding kind of the flow of what I want to do this morning, those of you who like clear outlines, we're going to follow kind of the key words of the outline that I'll follow this morning are these. The first is definition, the second is diagnosis, and the third is distinction. And those words will make sense as we get to each of the points. There's a lot of overlap that we'll be discussing, but each of them are important for us to be able to process in our mind. First, we begin with the idea of definition, the definition of a peacemaker. Because it only makes sense if we're going to be peacemakers, we probably ought to know what a peacemaker is. And so we need to understand the word that Jesus has declared as he's instructing us. And at least in my mind, the easiest way to do that is to split the word into two parts. First is peace, and second is maker, and consider what Jesus is teaching us as part of our definition. The first word, peace, most of us understand is a very important and very significant and a very prominent word throughout all of the scriptures. In fact, from the Old Testament and New Testament, the word that is conveyed here is shown 350 times throughout all of the scriptures. About 250 times, uh, a little over 250 times in the Old Testament, the word shalom or some word that is a variation of shalom. And then its Greek translation, irene, which means the whole concept of shalom, appears 92 times in the New Testament. So this is not an Old Testament or new concept. This is God's concept from beginning to end. The whole theme of peace is not only prevalent, it is prominent. It is the vision towards which God is moving us. But even as we consider the word and the whole concept of shalom, it's important that we recognize shalom has more meaning than we often assign to it. Most of us that have any familiarity with the word at all, if asked what it means, we would say shalom means peace. And it does mean peace. That's how we would translate it. But in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew tradition, it carries far more weight than simply peace. When we think of peace, we tend to think of absence of conflict or at least some sort of inner peace, a sense that we, we're okay. We feel a sense of stability. And the word shalom includes that, but the simplest way to understand shalom is to recognize both what it says and what it, what it, what it doesn't say, or what it stands for and what it doesn't stand for. Because shalom not only means peace, it means the absence of anything that robs you of peace. Shalom is encompassing of every aspect of our lives, personally, of our culture, of our world. It is a well-rounded, it's a holistic world. Shalom means the well-being your well-being, the well-being of those who are around you, the well-being of our culture and of our world. It's an incredibly pregnant word. And so when Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, he has in mind that we would be concerned about not just the absence of hostilities, but that we would have in mind the well-being of everyone, in fact, the well-being of the entirety of the culture and the world. Now you add to that, the second word is maker. The word maker is a dynamic word. It, it exudes action. It does not allow us to be passive. To be a maker doesn't allow you to sit back. It, it's, it's calling us to be engaged. It's calling us to, to whatever extent we're able to make something happen. And so when we put those two words together, we recognize that God is granting to us a grand vision, not only of how he wants us 
to engage in the world, but of what he envisions for the world as well, what he has prescribed, the way he originally created it, and what he has promised that it will one day be. We are called by this verse to be the agents by which he demonstrates to this conflicted world the peace that he created, the peace that he desires, the peace that he promises, and the peace for which he sent his son to make happen. What he began in Jesus, he says, is going to be continued through his people. We are called to be peacemakers in this world. Now, we could stop there, and for many of us, that might be helpful. It certainly is weighty, and so we have to consider that. But there's a natural question that we would ask. Even if we understand what we are to do and what our objective is, what would that look like? How would that manifest itself practically? I want to share two passages with you that I think will help us shape some understanding in our minds and then hopefully shaping our hearts. And first, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. As Jeremiah is writing, God is inspiring him to speak to his people who are living in exile. Because of their unfaithfulness, first Israel, then Judah, had been taken captive. And now the people in Judah had been taken captive and brought to be assimilated into Babylon. It's a culture that is not only unsympathetic to their values, in many ways it is hostile to their values. And so they're asking this question, no doubt. How do we continue to be distinctively God's people? when we're being assimilated into a culture that makes it difficult for us to live as God's people, to live out God's values. How are we supposed to relate to this culture? How are we supposed to just live our lives? And God, in Jeremiah 29, gives an instruction. Begin our reading here in verse 4. This is God's answer to how we live. And it's not an unimportant question because it's one that's pertinent to us as well because we are also exiles, we are God's people, citizen primarily of heaven, and yet we live as citizens within this world, just as the, the, uh, the, the Judaites, the Jews, were citizens now in, in, um, in Babylon. And we are living in a culture that is increasingly unsympathetic and hostile to the values with which we seek to live. And so here's what God says to those who live in that circumstance. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We also need to note here, this is God's sovereign. This is not something that is taken out of God's hand. God's not coming into a plan B. God is saying, I did this. I sent them there. And it was purpose. It was this purpose actually to spread God's peace. Picking up in verse 5, here's what you're to do. Build houses. And live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray, that the, pray to the Lord for, uh, on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, the simple instruction to people who are living in exile in a culture that is unsympathetic and hostile to their values is go about life. 
Build a house and live in it. Take your wife. Have kids. They should have kids. Live your life. Plant a garden. Eat from the garden. So go about your business. Go about the business as you always would. But with an interesting statement at the end of it. Despite the fact that this is a hostile culture to their values and to their faith. He says, pray to the Lord for its welfare. For in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. And what's interesting about that is the word for welfare there is shalom. Which actually should be translated or appropriately translated. Pray for its peace. For as it has peace, you will find your peace there as well. See, this is the vision of what God would have for us to do in this culture, in this society, in the way that we are to live. We are not at war with it, or if we are at war, we use the methods that are God's methods and not the world's methods, is we just go about our lives. We become agents of his peace as we live, and we pray to the Lord who is peace, that he would bring peace and even well-being, the whole of shalom, to the community where we live, to the nation where we live. To all of the nations, wherever God takes us, wherever God sends us, this is our responsibility, the way that we relate to the community and the way that we live our life. We become the agents of peace. We become the intercessors of peace, prosperity, the well-being for them. But we do so in a way that's in conformity with what God has called us to do. We don't change our values. We don't change our approach. When we are, if somebody is at war with us, we continue to live and we pray for them to prosper. But true prosperity is always in accordance with God's truth. This is the vision that God has. This is the promise that one day will be the reality. We know that it's not our reality now, but we do have tastes of it. We may have had a bigger portion in years past, which we long for. This is not outside of God's providence. God has given us instruction. In this culture, in this world, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Apostle Paul gives us instructions related to this on a more interpersonal level. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, the Apostle says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. See, this is the practical explanation, the practical instruction that builds on Jesus' instruction to be peacemakers. And it itself carries some significant implications. One, it doesn't exempt us, regardless of our circumstance. Because as far as it depends on you, indicates that we might all be in different circumstances, or any of us will be in different circumstances at any time. But however it depends on us, our actions ought to be committed to the grand vision that God has given to us. The instruction of which Jesus has laid out for us is that we are peacemakers. As far as it is up to us, we act as peacemakers with everyone. Everyone means everyone here. Whether it's within the church, outside the church, whether it's people who are sympathetic and are, are exploring the faith, or people who are hostile to faith and would rather have you dead. As far as is up to you, as far as is up to me, our lives are to be lived up, lived out, seeking their peace, their welfare and even interceding to God for it. But it also reminds us of something that's important for us to consider as well. As far as it depends on you, indicates that there are things that we cannot make happen. And so while we seek to be peacemakers, as we have all experienced, 
and I suspect as many of us fear, since we cannot make it happen, there are those who will continue to oppose us, whether it's they misunderstand, whether it is hatefulness, or whether it's just the environment, whatever the cause, peace is not always present, and we're not promised that we're going to experience peace even when we commit ourselves to being peacemakers. So we've considered the definition of what a peacemaker is and the vision of what God would have us to do, and even somewhat of the conditions. So we move on to the second point. We need to also have a diagnosis of the problem. We have defined what peacemaking is, but because we recognize we're not always going to have peace, even against our best efforts, we need to diagnose the problem because necessary to an effective solution is an understanding of the problem. And so we ask, and many people ask, in fact, many people are stunted by the question, why is there so much conflict in the world? What is the problem? God has revealed this to us as well. In James chapter 4, the Lord speaks to us and he tells us exactly what the problem is, why there's so much conflict. And here's what he says through James. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Or as the King James Version says, what causes wars and fights among you? But what causes wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. See, what God is telling us is that the problem is not the world we live in, problematic as it may be. It is not our changing culture, as difficult as that may be for us to adjust. The problem is you. The problem is me. The problem is our own hearts. That's what he's revealing here as to why there's conflict and even wars in this world. He lays it out. It is our desires. He didn't even say it's our evil desires, but it's the intensity of the desires that leads it as he begins. They come from your desires that battle within you. There's a spiritual war within us. God tells us through Jeremiah that our hearts are deceitful. In other words, they tell us something that is not true. We cannot trust our feelings and our emotions. Just because our heart tells us something doesn't make it right or necessarily even good. It doesn't mean we have the the right sensitivity to it. But the Lord is saying here, you desire something that you don't have, so you're willing to kill for it. Whether that's an actual war, or whether you kill with your words, whether you kill somebody's spirit by the way that you behave, we want something, we don't have it. And so we're willing to kill We want something that we can't get, so we quarrel and we fight about it, which leads to conflict and hostilities. And so it's important that we understand the implications of what God is saying here. Because of the tendency for most of us who particularly would say, well, we want what God wants, we need to recognize that left to ourselves, our hearts are no different than anybody else's in the world. We want things, 
And we're willing to go to war and to kill over the things that we want. Conflict comes because of our hearts. Our circumstances and other people, no matter what they are, never cause, our, uh, cause us to sin or to be in conflict. That comes from within. Other people and their behavior or the circumstances we find ourselves in may be the occasion for our sin, but they never cause it. They simply draw out of us what's already in our hearts, our own desires that may seem good, may even be good, but they are out of order, inordinate desires. We need to recognize the problem rests within ourselves. As Jesus is calling us to be peacemakers, that's the first and the greatest obstacle we have. Other people don't keep us from being faithful, our own desires do. And yet we tend to respond to these problems in two ways. James reveals one that is the most common, or it seems to be the most common, certainly the most common contributing to war is we break the peace. We become peace breakers. We want something. It is our desire, and so we either argue until we get what we want, or we go to war until we get what we want. We're willing to break peace because whatever we want is of greater desire to us than living at peace. But some of us have figured that out. We even know that it's inappropriate. Maybe temperamentally you are more similar to me than you wish you were. And so the only way you know to deal with that is to go the other direction. Rather than being a peace breaker, you become a peace faker. In other words, you just claim, I can get over this and pretend like nothing is bothering you. You pretend as if there's no problem. You pretend there's no tension. But pretending doesn't mean that it's not so. And eventually, what we desire, what's within us, does bubble up and does show itself. And so either we become people who explode or we become a people who implode. People who explode through going to war, our real nature, and become peace breakers again, or people who are imploding, who become depressed and feelings of oppressed and helpless so that we become dysfunctional just because we just feel so helpless because we haven't dealt with whatever it is that's bothering us. Neither of those are what God is calling. The idea of peace faker, which is popular for a lot of people, God actually addresses that, and he says that, they, that we're not to listen to the prophets who cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, peace at all costs. The idea of just pretending like there's no problem, that's not what God is calling us to. We'll explore that in a moment. We need to understand that those two ways in which we can fall, neither of them was Jesus is calling us to. And so, the, again, recognizing shalom is not simply the absence of hostilities, but it is the unity, it is the oneness, it is the well-being of every person concerned. But then we ask so the question, if we now understand the problem and some of the dynamics of the problem, what then is the resolution? How do we become peacemakers? There's a couple of things that we need to do. The first thing is we need to identify the problem. And again, we know the problem overarching is our desires or it's somewhere within our desires. So we need to ask ourselves this question. What is it that I want? Recognizing that your desires will lie to you to some extent, but knowing ourselves, knowing what it is that we desire. Part of the problem is sometimes we function without really identifying what it is we want. If you don't know what you want, you don't, know what, what you, you don't have satisfaction because you won't know if you've got it. We need to know what it is that we want. It's that question. Sometimes we also, or we need to ask, what is it the other person wants? It may be, what's their beef? 
But what do they want? Because conflict happens when there are differences of desires. Ken Sandy, in his excellent book, The Peacemaker, which I highly recommend to everybody, he helps us understand what conflict is. His definition is conflict is any difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Let me say that again. Conflict is any difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. What's beautiful about this definition, he's not saying that our goals, our desires are necessarily bad. But even when they are good, sometimes they can be at cross purposes. Think about somebody, two friends that want the same position on the high school baseball team. Two friends who want the same role in the play. But there's only one role to have. There's nothing wrong with wanting the position. There's nothing wrong with wanting the role. And yet the fact that you both want the same thing and only one person can have it means that you are in conflict. Now, there are many examples where friends who have been doing this have remained the best of friends and have celebrated the one who, the one who didn't get the position, uh, celebrated the other one. Because what they wanted more than that thing is their friendship. And it's an example of people who are peacemakers even when there is possible conflict. But we need to be aware that we want something, other people want something, and identify those things so that we can disempower or, or, or uh, whatever the word is. That's a good word. I may have just made it up. But um, <laughs> becomes less potent um, that can divide us apart. We need to understand. And sometimes it's the lack of understanding that creates the first seeds of conflict. The first argument that Carolyn and I had after we got married falls into that kind of category. We came home from our honeymoon, and the first night home, Carolyn made a gourmet dinner, nice plates, candlelight. You know, we were just back from our honeymoon. And so the next night, she served the, the leftovers from the, from the first night. Still good. The third night, she made a gourmet dinner, something totally different. The fourth night, she served the leftovers. And so I was just kind of curious, and with all sensitivity, <laughs> I gently asked this question, is this was a pattern I should expect for the rest of my life? And do you know she took that the wrong way? <laughs> I still don't know what she wanted. You know, that's, um, <laughs> but not that question, apparently. Um, somewhere in there, I had a desire, and it wasn't what she was preparing or having dinner together or, or, or whatever. She had another desire. And therefore, we were in conflict. We need to identify what the problem is and recognize where conflicts may be. So that at times we recognize the conflict, we can turn our attention and resolve it together. Or at least recognize the potential that it has to drive us apart from something else that we would desire even more. We need to seek wisdom. James tells us that, even in the passage where he tells us what the problem is, the rest of that verse in James 4.2 says this, you do not have because you don't ask God. In other words, you have these desires, good desires, bad desires, but you, you don't know what to do with them, and you're not bringing them to God. Maybe you don't think they're that important that you should be asking God, but you don't know what to do with them. But here he's telling us we need to be seeking wisdom. We go to God and we ask God, and he'll be able to, and he tells us, he guides us, he directs us. We bring it to God and we trust that his promise is true. That if any of you lacks wisdom, come to God and ask him. And he will grant us that wisdom. 
We ask the question, how will God be most glorified? That's the most evidence of wisdom. And even in a practical sense, um, leadership guru Stephen Covey writes that this is, he just calls this the win-win principle. When you know what you want and you seek what the other person wants, you attack the problem in a way that gives the best resolution to both people that are involved. That's the shalom that Jesus is calling us to participate in and to make. But then even with the seeking of the wisdom and after we've understood the problem, there is a biblical approach. And Ken Sandy, I think, helps us here. He calls it the four G's of biblical reconciliation. The first one is glorify God and ask the question, how will God be most glorified? That will set us in the track in the right direction. But then he asks, says the second one is get the log out of your own eye. Jesus talks about this later in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, when there is a problem, we need to recognize that we have a problem, that we ourselves are broken. Now, some of us have difficulty with this because the other person's speck may be larger than your log, but that's irrelevant at this time. You have a speck that is distorting the way that you view all circumstances. The fact that you have a speck is a reminder that you are broken and therefore drives you to recognize that we need to be humble in the way that we approach things. We've got to deal with our own lives, our own hearts, ourselves, before we go and confront somebody else. His third G is gently restore. In other words, it's not enough just to know that I have a problem, but you're to go. And it may be go and ask the person, have I done something that offends you so that you have an opportunity to understand and you can apologize. There's reconciliation, conflict avoided. Not avoided, but destroyed. It may be that that's not the case and you still have something that you need to communicate with that person. And it's confrontation. And many people are good get the idea that we're supposed to do the confrontation and some people seem to enjoy it. But they lose the instruction that God gives us because as Paul's dealing with this issue, he elaborates on this whole idea, go to the other person. But when you do, go and seek to restore them gently. Otherwise, you may be tempted as well. In other words, he's reminding us that we're still broken. Even if you're in the right, even if your desire is right, even if somebody has wronged you, we're still broken. And simply going and confronting somebody with their wrong is likely to get the response that only inflames the circumstances. But going with a gentleness and a humility and a way of demonstrating that you're only dealing with this because you love the person or you want to love the other person, that lowers the likelihood of escalation of the conflict. But go, but restore them gently. And the last one is go and be reconciled. And that instruction that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 is a reminder that it's not enough just to address the issue. But the peacemaker persists until reconciliation has been achieved. We go, we may not be received or even understood, but we're called to be restored. And so those are the processes by which we are to follow as we engage with people who differ. But the scripture is also very clear, and we understand that from Paul's instruction to us, so far as it's up to you, live at peace with all people. When you are willing to commit yourself to be a peacemaker, you also need to prepare yourself for some unreasonable people. Because, make no mistake about it, to commit yourself to be a peacemaker after the image of Christ opens you up to potential pain, potential to be misunderstood, potential for rejection. For any number of reasons. It could be that the person is just racked with pain 
hurt, anger, bitterness. It could be that the issue is significant and one conversation is not going to resolve it. It could be that they're not just not ready yet. The possibilities are limitless, but anybody who's engaged in peacemaking process, whether for yourself or on behalf as a mediator for others, you want to see and feel some pain, get in the middle of somebody else's fight. You get hit by both sides. All you're trying to do is help. But this also is a demonstration of what Christ has done for us as he became our mediator and he became like us. We are instructed to be peacemakers. We need to be prepared. There is a real sense in which peacemakers are actually fighters. Peacemakers at times are even troublemakers. We see this at a societal level that is also true in a personal level. The societal level comes to mind, who comes to mind for me is Martin Luther King. Compelled by his understanding of truth, of the way God has created us, compelled by his understanding of the gospel, he saw a society that was hostile to him and people like him. And he wasn't willing to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. He saw it was wrong. And so he engaged in what some people called being a troublemaker. He didn't let things sit. He didn't let the churches that were walking in sin just exist as long as they didn't hurt anybody. He confronted, but at the same time, he did so in a way that was peaceful, with no retaliation, willing to absorb physical punishment, imprisonment, rejection, and in his case, even death. He didn't see the reality of his work come to fruition, and there's still a lot to be done. But he's a demonstration of what we need to see the church be engaged in societally and what we need to be doing individually is engaging where there is need, fighting but being peaceful about it, absorbing the punishment for the sake of other people in order that peace might ultimately prevail. And right now, a lot of our culture, whether it's on the right or the left, we've ignored that instruction of Christ, the example of Dr. King, and we are in a civil war. And the only thing that is acceptable anymore is the destruction of the other side. I'm uncomfortable saying that. I take comfort from something Camper said this morning. He said, well, at least they can't get angry with you and tell you about it today because that would violate the peace. But anyway, that's... Uh... <laughs> but we need to understand that our culture is calling us to war. Our Christ is calling us to be peacemakers. How will the church respond? How will we respond with those who differ from us? And the answer determines the last point, our distinction. Or our identity. Because Jesus said, those who are peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. They is distinctive. He's not saying everybody is a son of God. He's saying those who are the peacemakers, it's distinctly those. Those who follow, obedient, and demonstrate, they're the ones only that are going to be called sons of God. By who? By God. Whether the world calls you that, whether the world recognizes it or not, God is the one that is saying they shall be called sons of God. God is saying to those who endeavor to be peacemakers, You're just like me. You're a reflection of my heart. You are expressing the family DNA. Because at the heart of God, and the aim of the gospel, is peace. 
Even as we declared earlier, Christ came that as he willingly laid down his life, as his blood was shed, that's what purchased peace for us with God. Paul elaborates in Ephesians and saying, because of what Christ has done, as he became our peace and enables us to have peace with others, with one another. And this instruction says, this is the characteristic, this is the DNA, this is what the gospel produces. And so when we do this, when this is our bent, peace, true peace, as God decided, peace with one another, peace with God, when that is the objective of our life, for we desire shalom for everyone, we are reflecting the heart of God. We look like the family. And he says that we, therefore, are called sons of God. Now, some translations say children of God, and that's not wrong. But there is a significance of sons of God that I want you to consider. Um, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes it in a way that's easier to understand than if I tried to summarize. So I'm just going to read his point. The difference is slight, the difference between children being called children of God and sons of God. But in Jewish thought, son often bears the meaning partaker of the character of. And then Carson gives this illustration. It's not mine, though it may sound like something I would say. Therefore, if someone calls you a son of a dog, this is not an aspersion on your parents, but on you. The son, at least in Hebrew thinking, has the characteristics of a dog. If you're a son of a dog, you have the characteristics of a dog. The son of God has a different connotation than child of God. Both can refer to some sort of familial relation, but the former has more emphasis on the character than the position. In other words, it is true that those who do this are status children of God. But we, as we endeavor to be peacemakers, are demonstrating the characteristic, the character traits of God. We resemble God and the family being reminded that the ultimate peacemaker is Jesus himself who died to his self-interests in order that we might be free who reconciled us by his blood who opened peace to us through that and as New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner says for the Christian peacemaking is defined by the life, the death of Jesus the way Jesus does peace shapes the way we do it and this is an important word because we live in a culture where some, under the guise of being peacemakers, even within the church, seem to think that they're going to out-compassion God by being seeking peace at the expense of truth. At the same time, those of us on the other side of the fence, those who, us, who call ourselves conservative, the preservers of truth, we're willing to embrace truth, but we are quick to do so in a way that breaks down any possibility of peace. Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate peacemaker, who brought us peace, who has granted us the peace of God, is not only the one through whom we receive peace and have been reconciled to God, he is the model of the way that we live out that peace, which is without sacrificing either peace or truth. Because apart from either one, people cannot know God. They cannot know truth. 
They'll be left to their own instincts. And even as we began this message with the understanding our own stinks, instincts, well, our own instincts stink, our own instincts will lead to war. Because that's our nature. And that's our world. And so we don't think anything of it. But blessed are the peacemakers. For you will be called sons of God. May that be true of us individually as this church, as the church. That this world who needs peace, who desperately wants peace, who's warring in order to find peace, would see the reality of peace in the way that we live and love and intercede. We are the vessels to do what Jesus began. We are the peacemakers of the world. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you and pray that you would bless us, strengthen us in your truth, in your grace, and in your love. For one another, for those who hate us, despise us, who would kill us. May we recognize how hard it is, our own brokenness, and turn our eyes to Jesus, where we're not only reminded of our pattern, but what has been done for us. Father, turn our eyes to Jesus that we may become like him. This we pray in Christ.